Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. I've done a lot more thinking about Julius Caesar than I've ever wanted to lately, so, and I'm going to continue to do so because we're it's going to come up again when we do camp this summer. So I'm just kind of in a Caesar brain all the time thinking about this shit. I'm, I'm glad because I <laughs> am not. <laughs> Frankly, I was like, did Shakespeare even write this play? What is this play? Have I read this? Have I seen that's, this? Yes, I have read it several times. I've seen it several yeah. times. Yes, Shakespeare wrote it. <laughs> In it. It's kind of like when you look at your own name for so long, you're like, is that even how my name is spelled? What even is my name? Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet. And Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week it's Julius Caesar 201. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. Uh, This is a 201 level episode and things are a little different for 201s. Yeah. Um, for 201s, we feel like you know the play a little bit, so you don't get a synopsis. Um, but if you need that, we have a Caesar 101 episode in our back catalog, and you can go listen to it and feel yes. special and awesome. It's like early. It's, it is, yeah. It's an early episode. Yeah. Um, so it might not be uh, super great, but it'll be fun. It'll definitely be fun. I I still think it'll be great. the The recording quality may oh, not. Oh yeah, the be recording quality will be what, trash. Well, not trash, but like definitely not what it is now because we're learning yeah. things as we go. Yes, we're um, better. Yeah, you know, because that's how learning yeah. works. You, what and, I know, it's like <laughs> revolutionary. What I'm saying right now. Well, uh, yeah. So I forgot where we left off. Doop doop. Okay. Two, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I lost my spot in the outline. Uh, in 201 level episodes, we like to go narrow and deep on a couple of topics relating to the play. Mm, today, we're going to talk about Plutarch's lives and also that nice Antony guy. Or is he nice? I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> I think you're about to tell me probably. I well, Maybe. Yeah. 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 yeah, but so, first, mm-hmm, before yes. we do that, uh, okay. let's talk a little bit of rhetoric, shall yes. we? Yeah, yes, okay. so, indeed. Um, in our one-on-one episodes that we have done and are no longer doing in our Shakespeare one-on-one episodes that we yes. used to do, uh, we discuss definitions. <laughs> of rhetorical devices and we give examples um but when we do the 201 level what we want to do is revisit a device that we've already talked about and discuss the uses or possible characterizations of that particular device in this particular play right yeah so in 101s we'll say you know identifying a character's rhetoric helps us understand them or helps an actor get a line reading or a sense of a line reading um but but what does that actually mean in practice so to answer that, we have to look at the specific context in which the device is used and think about the kind of device that it is. 
This week, we're going to look at a device that I find rather dry and boring, um, except when it applies to this play, which is why I saved it for this play, um, and and the character I want to focus on with it. Uh, so I'm looking at Isocolon. Uh, uh huh. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Which yeah, is that the checks out. <laughs> yeah, which is the repetition yeah. of structure. It's the repetition yeah. of sentence structure, which again can feel like a real snoozer until you realize that one, it's kind of everywhere, um, and it's a part of it. It bleeds into other rhetorical devices, right? Any kind of the repetition you have a lot of times it's a repetition of a structure of something, right? Um, but. Brutus, in particular, in Julius Caesar, is a huge perpetrator of isocolon. Um, I think you can go through really any of his speeches throughout the play and find the way he replicates structure and his thought patterns. And if anyone can hear my cat Rafe singing to I us can. in the background, I can hear. You're welcome. Um, today, it's a a, a, a little-known cat aria called. Um, anyway, so I, just to get a, a little taste of that from your boy Brutus, I'm going to go to his iconic funeral oration speech in Act 3, Scene 2. Um, and it's not the entire speech, but it is notable, first of all, just to look at that speech and note that it's in prose, which is interesting. Yeah, I was just going to say that I hadn't realized that this speech is in prose. Yeah. That's yeah. wild. It is. It is. And uh, especially given that most of his other speeches are in verse. Pretty much everything else yeah. he does is in verse. This is in prose. So th- that right there is like a, hmm, why? Why is he speaking prose to the masses? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because mm. Brutus mm. underestimates mm. the peoples uh, and is a little condescending. I don't know. Um, but there are some really choice repetitions of structure here. Um, most notably, and it's a pretty iconic line, not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Love Caesar less. Love Rome more. Boom, 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 boom. Uh, and then I'm just going to read this passage almost to the end, and you can hear how this structure gets repeated and kind of what Brutus is doing. So, so I'm going to start me. with, yeah, I'm going to start with, as Caesar loved me, I weep for him. As he was fortunate, I rejoice at it. So short, concise sentences, repeated structure. As he was valiant, I honor him. But as he was ambitious, I slew him. There is tears for his love, joy for his fortune, honor for his valor, and death for his ambition. Now, when he repeats structure like that, like the first few that he's setting up there sound totally reasonable, right? And I think that's the point. He's sort of, he's burying the whole, oh yeah, and I killed him, right? Um, but he's he's using really logical stuff to appeal to people. Like, you know, he says, as he loved me, I weep for him. Because yeah, logically... You know, you weep when people you love die, right? Uh, You rejoice at the fortune of your friends, right? As he was fortunate, I rejoice. As he was valiant, I honor him. Of course, sure. Don't we all honor valiant people? Sure we do. Support the troops. Rah, rah, right? But then point number four, he goes, as he was ambitious, I slew him. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't go around killing people who show ambition. I actually kind of am kind of find ambition kind of hot so like i don't you know like your boy brutus is is setting up a false equivalency here by putting three very rational things together and structuring his sentences in such a way that it all sounds logical and like it flows right so after that he repeats another kind of structure who is here so base that would be a bondman if any speak for him i have offended who is here so rude that would not be a roman 
if any, speak, for him I have offended. Who is here so vile that will not love his country? If any, speak, for him have I offended. I pause for a reply. Right? Mm. So the repetition of that rhetorical question and then pseudo waiting for an answer and then question wait for an answer, question, wait for an answer. And of course, he doesn't expect anyone to actually answer because he set up his questions in such a way that no one actually wants to, no no one wants to say, oh yeah, me, I would want to be a bondman. Thanks. Okay, bye. No one wants to do that, right? Um, So he's using that repetition of structure almost to like, seems like almost to lull the listener into following along with him, which of course is what he's trying to do, right? He is trying to assuage the masses after having killed their leader, right? So it is it is fucking clever the way he uses isocolon. Um and and Brutus, this is kinda his thing throughout the play. So if you want more examples of that, <laughs> Yan Yon, go find them. <laughs> um, this is the only speech that I was gonna look at for that. But that is how something dry or seemingly dry like isocolon can actually be very, very effective in a speech. So you're welcome. Dig it. Right. It's kind of crazy. Um, So talk to us if you can, then, given given the brain constraints uh, about you. Tell tell us about what you want to tell us about for Caesar. Plutarch's Lives. Plutarch's Lives. So Plutarch's Lives uh, is the source text for Julius Caesar. Um, Plutarch was a a guy and he wrote a book called Lives. Mm. So we call it Plutarch's Lives. Indeed. Um, Anyway, so I'm going to tell you I'm going to tell you a little bit about Plutarch. Um, a little bit about the text and then I'm actually going to read to you a little bit of of the text um, right on. that Shakespeare would have had access to. It's a translation because uh, Plutarch is very old and very not English. Um, but I want to just cite my sources up front and say all of this comes from the Arden 3 edition, which was edited by David Daniel. Um, so nice. if you would like to learn more, there's a lot more to be learned in the Arden edition. Um, I'm just, Great. I'm going to take you through a couple, a couple samples. Okay. So, um, the edition that Shakespeare was working from was translated by a guy called Thomas North. Um, and Shakespeare used the Plutarch kind of however he wanted because Shakespeare. Um, yeah. So sometimes the events of the play, he took them kind of wholesale, like the assassination. Um, and sometimes he borrowed phrases, like when Brutus says that he wants to be, quote, worthy of so noble a wife. Um, that comes straight from the Plutarch. But mostly he, you know, Shakespeared it up and like adapted and changed and fucked with and omitted and expanded and invented and like did whatever he wanted to because Shakespeare don't play that way man right he, he gonna do what he gonna do so while while Julius Caesar was a real person and the the events of the play actually happened the story the this play is like mostly Shakespeare um the the story that he is telling is is pretty compellingly his own uh which is very interesting um also of course he relied on other sources like he does um other historians like Suetonius and Appian um other books like the Bible Ovid the usual stuff that you would mm-hmm. expect to to see from Shakespeare he was he was a big a big fan okay so then Plutarch himself Plutarch the man the man Plutarch uh was a Greek citizen living in the Roman Empire who was born in about the year 45 so um that was a long time ago <laughs> Like, but also after Caesar was murdered, like two years yeah. after Caesar was murdered. 
Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he was born in, you know, about 45. Um, he we know that he visited uh, Alexandria. He went to Rome a couple of times. Um, so mostly he was he was one of those great philosophers of, you know, the classical antiquity eras that I am not a scholar of. Um, <laughs> and his his house uh, became like what we might think of as like a salon where, Ooh. you know, the great minds would gather and philosophize, oh. you know, uh-huh. that kind of thing. Um, not like a, like a hair salon. Not or like, or a not like a French salon where ladies are just topless. No, the other okay. kind of French salon great. where people gather and <laughs> philosophize. Great. Um, yeah, he was, he was a student of Plato. He was a student of Pythagoras. Uh, he was a member of the college of priests of Apollo at Delphi. He, did a lot. He wrote about poetry. He was a biographer. He was a historian. He did a lot. He was this this man did some shit. Okay. okay. Uh, and he also lived a fairly long time. He died uh, around 120. So um, what is that? It's like 80 years yeah. ish. Yeah. 75, mm-hmm. 85 math, whatever. That's pretty long for back then. Yeah. Frankly. Yeah. 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 So he wrote Plutarch's Lives. He wrote Lives. There are 50 lives that are chronicled. Um, They are-ish, like 50-50 Greek and Roman. And most of the lives are paired together. So one Greek with one Roman. And these Mm. are intended um, to sort of silently comment on each other and compliment each other in some kind of way. Um, he also has a short essay of comparison on about 19 of these pairs, like when he compares Alcibiades to Coriolanus, um, to bring out important elements that are revealed in these lives that are being compared. Throughout, however, throughout all of the lives he chronicles, he's way more interested in the moral character of these people than like the political events that they encounter. And that's interesting as well. Mm-hmm. So in the Caesar portion of the lives, in the life of Caesar, we don't get to kind of the events of this play until almost all the way through his recounting of Caesar's life, which like makes sense, right? Because Caesar dies in Act 3. Sure. And it's and then, the end of his life, done. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So after after Plutarch records the assassination in the senate um he then sort of like slows down a little bit and like walks us very leisurely through the aftermath like brutus does not address the people until the day after the assassination um and then the senate like takes its time figuring out what they're going to do next um and then they think everything's settled and then they open Caesar's will and they're like, oh, fuck, everything's going to go to hell and we're going to riot and Rome is going to get burned. Um, but then even that gets overshadowed by the story of Sin of the Poet, um, mm. which is shoehorned in there. Uh, and there's like this tiny little brief like epilogue coda situation um, that talks about the the portents the the omens uh linked with cassius and brutus's suicides um so that's more or less what is happening in there um so now i just want to read to you uh two sections that come to the assassination okay this is straight straight from plutarch although this is the thomas north translation 
Okay. So, there was a certain soothsayer that had given Caesar warning long time afore to take heed of the day of the Ides of March, which is the 15th of the month, for on that day he should be in great danger, or if you're Thomas North, danger, because there's a U. <laughs> That day being come, Caesar going unto the Senate house and speaking merrily to the soothsayer told him the Ides of March be come. So be they, softly answered the soothsayer, but yet are they not past. And the very day before, Caesar supping with Marcus Lepidus sealed certain letters as he was wont to do with the board, so talk falling out amongst them, reasoning what death was best, he preventing their opinions, cried out aloud, death unlooked for. That sentence is so syntactically fucked. Then going to bed the same night as his manner was and lying with his wife Calpurnia, all the windows and doors of his chamber flying open, the noise awoke him and made him afraid when he saw such light, but more when he heard his wife Calpurnia being fast asleep, weep and sigh and put forth many fumbling lamentable speeches, for she dreamed that Caesar was slain and that she had him in her arms. Calpurnia's dream vision. I'm skipping Mm -hmm. a whole bunch. Okay. Yeah. So Caesar coming into the Senate house. All the Senate stood up on their feet to do him honor. Then part of Brutus' company and Confederates stood round about Caesar's chair, and part of them also came towards him, as though they made suit with Metellius Simber. Simber? Kimber? How do we say I, his name? I say Simber, but okay, I, honestly, it's old and dead and Roman, so right. who, who knows? Go Simber. Great. So uh, part of them also came towards him as though they made suit with Metellus Simber to call home his brother again from banishment, and thus prosecuting still their suit, they followed Caesar till he was set in his chair, who, denying their petitions and being offended with them one after another, because the more they were denied, the more they pressed upon him and were earnester with him, Metellus at length, taking his gown with both his hands, pulled it over his neck, which was the sign given the Confederates to set upon him. Then Casca behind him strake him in the neck with his sword, howbeit the wound was not great nor mortal, because it seemed the fear of such a devilish attempt did amaze him and take his strength from him, that he killed him not at the first blow. But Caesar turning straight unto him caught hold of his sword and held it hard, and they both cried out, Caesar in Latin, O vile traitor Casca, what doest thou? And Casca in Greek to his brother, Brother, help me! At the beginning of this stir they that were present, not knowing of the conspiracy, were so amazed with the horrible sight they saw that they had no power to fly, neither to help him, not so much as once to make any outcry. They, on the other side that had conspired his death, compassed him in on every side with their swords drawn in their hands, that Caesar turned him nowhere, but he was stricken at by some, and still had naked swords in his face, and was hacked and mangled among them as a wild beast taken of hunters. For it was agreed among them that every man should give him a wound, because all their parts should be in this murder and then brutus himself gave him one wound about his privities oh shit yet to brute caesar got stabbed in the deck by brutus by brutus holy fuck Mm -hmm. so that's that's a little plutarch for you wow yeah wow in the privates (laughs) oh my goodness yeah wow yeah Ooh. Nice. Yeah. Tell um, me uh tell me about Anthony. Okay. Yeah. So as I mentioned, um I've seen more performances of Julius Caesar than any reasonable human ever should. Um mostly because of my job, but also because I've seen Caesar a lot at like at different places, but I've seen it at least like 20 times in the last 6 months, and that's too goddamn much. 
Um, like it just it just is. Um, but I've gained a lot of perspective on that guy, Antony. Um, on on the other characters too, but really the only character I cared about uh, in the most recent production uh, that I had to watch a lot um, was because the actor playing Antony was making some damn interesting choices, like really interesting choices. Who played Antony? That was Jeffrey Kent. Oh, Hefe. Duh, duh, duh. Got yeah. it. <laughs> right. Jeffrey Kent was making some very, very interesting Antony choices. Choices that, like, I didn't know I wanted to see or that I really did want to see, but he's the first person I ever actually saw make them and on stage, and it was very, very exciting for me, um, at least the first couple of times. And then after that, I was like, eh, <laughs> I've seen it. Oh, my God. I've seen it so many times, you guys. Uh, and uh, all last fall, I spent I spent the whole fall really looking deeply at Act 3, Scene 1 um, in terms of cue scripts. Uh, and and breaking down how Shakespeare used the technology of the cue script to construct basically what you just described from Plutarch, right? About how the conspirators managed to get themselves around Caesar and who stabs when and like the conspiracy taking shape and and how Shakespeare managed to put that together through through cue script technology is sort of amazing. So I, I wanted to start there, first of all, um, because it was an aha moment that I had, not because... The most recent ASC production did this because we did not. And I think it's an interesting choice not to. Um, but when we were looking at the Q scripts, right, uh, there are many, many conspirators. Everybody's got their own part to play in the murder. Uh, and Trebonius is the guy, first of all, with a funny name because there's Boney in it. Um, but Trebonius is the guy who is, uh, he's the one responsible for getting Antony out of the way in that moment of assassination, right? He's the guy, they're like, oh, look, see, Trebonius knows his cue. For C, he leads Mark Antony out of the way. So when the stabby stabby happens, uh, Antony, because of Trebonius, is not there to see it um and you know why because well antony would have presumably like jumped in and tried to help or something had he been there right uh so trebonius does that but trebonius does not do any of the stabbing because of that right he's gone he's not on stage however when antony returns at the end of that scene he goes through he's got a little moment a little speech maybe f four or five lines uh, where he shakes the hand of every single conspirator. And by marking where the blood is, right, if you're using live blood, uh, meaning liquid blood, not not like the blood of a live person. Um, in the theater, we call live blood, it's liquid blood is live blood, um, as opposed to some kind of, you know, fabric facsimile or something. Or zombie blood. Right, yeah. <laughs> or dead blood. Um, no, it's live blood. When you're using live liquid blood on stage, right, um, you can actually track the the blood on whose hands uh, the blood is on right um so antony very cleverly goes through actually it might help if i read it so hang on let me find it so at the very end of three one uh when the conspirators have decided that uh they will let antony live and let him talk which is <laughs> stupid don't shouldn't have done that should have killed him really yep. honestly should have killed him um Antony does this little thing where he feigns like he's, you know, uh, he's like, oh, I'm sure you guys had good reason. Don't worry. I won't say anything bad about you. I promise. And he goes around and he shakes everybody's hand. Um, and so here is what he says. Now, listen to the order in which he shakes everybody's hand. 
First, Marcus Brutus, I will will I shake with you. Next, Caius Cassius, do I take your hand? Now, Decius Brutus, yours. Now yours, Metellus. Yours, Cinna. And my valiant Casca, yours. Though last, not least in love, yours, good Trebonius. Gentlemen all, alas, what shall I say? Blotty, blotty, blah, and he goes on and talks. So Antony has just come in with clean hands. He has shaken the hands, the bloody hands of everybody else, and then shaken his bloody hand with Trebonius's clean hands. So he has just visually marked Trebonius as a murderer by putting the blood on his hands, which I think is fucking amazing. It's so ingenious. Um, and again, our production did not make that choice. They had our Trebonius come on earlier and bathe his hands in the blood. So we don't get the opportunity to, we didn't get in that production, the opportunity to see Antony be so cunning that way. Um, but it, I, I think that was a mistake, frankly, um, because everything that I've watched and everything that I've read in Antony's character leads me to believe that he is more manipulative and conniving than anybody really gives him credit for. There's there's a lot of tendency um, to make Antony like the the rising phoenix sort of hero out of all of this. And like, he's just a good guy in a bad situation. Well, no, he's an opportunistic guy in a bad situation. Like not two scenes later, he there's this like little throwaway scene where he and Lepidus and Octavius decide that they're going to just rule Rome together. And like Caesar who? What? Triumvirate? Yeah, no problem. Let's do that. Let's do that thing. Right? So, okay. Then then there's the other thing. And this is where I give Jeff Kent a ton of props. Um, and literally because of what he does with a prop. So uh, in, in our production, for those who did not see it, uh, it, the murder of Caesar, of course, happens at the Senate. But this thing that our, the, our actors did, they had these scrolls, these paper scrolls in their hands. And when Caesar sort of took center stage uh, to begin the Senate or whatever and, and start hearing petitions, people kind of tossed the, the scrolls to the center of the stage toward Caesar, right? So there are scrolls sort of lying all over the stage at that point. And at the end of that, when the stabbing is over and Antony has his, oh, pardon me, the bleeding piece of earth, blah, blah, and Caesar's body is, is taken away pr- uh, briefly before it's brought back out, sort of wrapped up like a dead body, um, Antony, uh, Jeff, took a moment where he looked around stage. He happens to see a stray scroll and he picks it up and tucks it in his pocket. And then, and this is well before he starts his funeral oration. So then Brutus comes out to talk. Antony still has this will in his pocket, uh, this quote unquote will. It becomes the will is what I'm, uh, I've just ruined my own punchline. But basically he's got this scroll in his pocket, right? And then when it's time for him to do his funeral oration, when he brings up, and again, Antony's like the king of paralypsis, which is the, we're not going to talk about the thing that I'm, I've just brought up. Um, he does this with the will, right? So the, sorry, the implication is that in in this production, uh-huh. the will that he produces is not the real will. Yeah. It's just a random that's cool. scroll that's in his pocket. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. So you can very clearly see Jeffrey remember that there is a random piece of paper in his pocket. 
and he pulls it out when he wants to. Like the crowd is sort of swaying away from him, um, and he's like, "Well, the, but you know, the will I have not said." Uh, he pulls it out like it is the will, and then it becomes this amazing thing. And then even further, when like the people are like, "No, read the will, read the will," and he's like, "Oh, you're gonna make me read the will? Oh, okay, I'll read the will." He unrolls it, and then you can very clearly see on his face that he is making it up. Like he's he's looking at it and he's like, I shouldn't tell you that Caesar gives to everyone 75 drachmas and uh, his public walks and blah, blah, blah. Like he's clearly making it up. And I, I found that choice so exciting. I had never seen it done before. Uh, I always kind of wondered if it should be done or or like every time I had seen Julius Caesar before, I had wondered like, how manipulative is Antony, right? How ingen, how genuous or disingenuous? <laughs> what is the opposite of disingenuous? Uh, ingenuous? Um, genuine? How genuine? Thank you. <laughs> Words. Huh. I'm a master <laughs> We've of letters. Mastered our letters. <laughs> totally. And my prefixes and suffixes and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, how genuine is he in this moment? And then my mind always went to a plot hole. Like, where the fuck would Antony have gotten Caesar's will in that short amount of time? Right. So it answered that question very neatly. It, and it was just so exciting to watch. And it it made me think about, like, the implications for Antony as a character and even arcing into Antony and Cleopatra. Right. Him as a slightly older guy <laughs> who who you know, again, he's still living by like that sort of opportunistic way, devil may care sort of way, a way of life. Um, and it really backfires on him that in that play. Um, so it was fascinating to watch that uh, and what that one stage choice meant. It was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. And I'm not going to sit here and say that's the only way to do that. Um, but it was a, a neat answer for that question, which always lingered for me when I watched Julius Caesar, you know, the question of the will and if it's real or not. Um, so that, I don't know, that those are my thoughts. Those are my thoughts on Antony. So anybody out there who's tasked with playing Antony, um, make a choice about that. Like decide where Antony falls on the nobility spectrum, if you will. And and for God's sake, make use of the prop. I don't know. Just like <clears throat> that was cool. It was just a yeah, fucking cool, cool thing. Um, and I even had like a really awkward moment where I the first time I saw this was last summer when our campers, you know, we brought our campers to see Julius Caesar. And then sort of a tradition for camp that like for like a half an hour after one show, the kids get to mingle with the actors like we invite the actors and they get to, you know, talk. Um, and poor Jeffrey was like hiding from the kids a little bit, like up against the wall. And I cornered him and I was like, oh my God, Jeffrey the Will. <laughs> and it was, um, he was really nice answering my questions and talking with me about it. But I was a little he's intense a about human. it. Yeah, yeah. He's lovely man. Lovely man. <laughs> yeah. He was really indulgent. But I was, I was like turned up to 11 about that choice. Of course um, you were. <laughs> and <laughs> I was so excited about that choice. Yeah. So, you know, that's, those are my feelings about that. And that is that is what I got. Um, That's real. Yeah. On our curiously, we don't have to like go into this, um, but on our Julius Caesar, like 201, 301 ideas, the only thing we have written is um, the other nine Julius Caesar plays written by contemporaries. Shakespeare was the only one who wrote a sympathetic Brutus. 
I don't remember which of us wrote that. It wasn't me because I would have then no it, way of knowing that. Then it was me. Oh, here's oh here's why, because Ralph made some comment about that in a excuse me in a Doctor Ralph lecture. Of course, that there he were. Did. Yeah, well, there were a bunch of other Julius Caesar yeah, plays written by contemporaries, and all of them really really villainize Brutus. Um, and this one doesn't do that as much. Yeah, which is interesting, but something for a different episode, because you know, at some point we'll maybe I mean, talk about this again. I don't know. Brutus is an honorable man. Mm. So I, I mean, hear. Yeah. Yeah. Someone says it a bunch. It's Antony. Antony yeah, says it a bunch. It's Antony, that master manipulator. Brutus is an honorable man. Yeah. Brutus. Brutus. Obligatory Brutus. What up, Marsh? <laughs> Brutus. Hey, Marshall, that was for you. Yeah. It's an uh, inside right. joke for approximately four people who will listen to this podcast. And two of them are us. Yep. <laughs> You're welcome, world. Yep. Uh, all right. Shall we gossip a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So in 201s, we, we try to keep it play-centric if we can. We try um, to lead with okay. play-centric. I, okay. think, I think that's okay. more accurate. That yeah. is more accurate. All right. Yeah. You're fine. You're right. Um, yeah. So if you're in the UK... Uh, according to the few resources that I bother to check um, <laughs> uh, that sort of uh, compile all this information in one spot, because I'm a lazy girl with not a lot of time. Um, if you're in the UK, there's an adaptation, a one man show adaptation of Julius Caesar happening pretty much all of February from the 5th to the 29th. Oh, my God, because it's a leap year. I was like, 29th. Nope, it's a leap year. A leap year. It's called I, Cinna the Poet. Write a Revolution, uh, written and performed by Tim Crouch. And it's going to be at the Unicorn Theater in London from, again, the 5th to the 29th. So that sounds interesting. That like does it sound interesting. Talks to Julius Caesar in a, in a very particular way. So if anybody sees it, please let us know how it is. Also, our friends over there in the UK, please let me know if I've missed any, you know, happening Julius Caesar shows and didn't didn't talk about them and you want to shout them out we want to shout you out so yeah um, and in the u.s there's only a few left <laughs> only a few left ever um we've got the playmakers repertory company in chapel hill in north carolina um from march 4th to the 22nd is doing julius caesar uh if you are in northern virginia you can see it at avant bard which side note is like the best name for a theater company great name super into that uh in arlington uh from the end of may to sort of the middle of june 2020 Mm -hmm. yep uh then we've got theater at monmouth in monmouth maine in the summer of 2020 it's doing julius caesar emma go see that um a shout out to a single listener in this slash near Maine. And then the last one is uh, in Wisconsin, Spring Green, Wisconsin. It's a place I've never heard of uh, at the American Players Theater. And it's just part of their 2020 season. So maybe you've missed it. I don't know. Maybe it's coming up. It's yeah. probably coming up. We're and in January still. Yeah. Yeah. I hope it's coming up. Um, yeah. And also, if you want to see a one hour cut for free, you can come down to the American Shakespeare Center on August 2nd and see some really excited, over-emotional young campers do this show. No, it's going to be, I think it's going to be good. Um, We've got Jack Reed directing and we're very excited about it. Um, Speaking of campers, just wanted to give a little shout out to Jesse Waldman, 
who um, very thoughtfully commented on our Devil's Charter episode to let us know about the history of the name Candy and the, the rather the seat of Candy, which just sounds silly. <laughs> um, it was just precious and I wanted to share it. Um, wanted to say that while usually Candy as a location refers to Crete, um, but also here refers to the ancestral Borgia possession of Gandia in Spain. So it's kind of a bastardization of Gandia, um, which the Duke gained through underhanded dealings. So thank you. Big surprise there. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> what? No. Um, so thank you, Jesse, for um, expanding our knowledge a little bit there. And I guess really the gossip is just me centric this week because I'm mm-hmm. the one providing all of it. But yeah, also um, no spoilers because I haven't finished the show. Definitely, I'm not spoiling anything. Definitely not spoiling anything. But um, the other two items of gossip I have really are just because I watch too much TV. And also, please sponsor us, Netflix. Um, if anyone watches Sex Education on Netflix, one, if you don't, fix your fucking life. It's a great show, really and is. watch it. Um, but the uh, a f- several episodes in the season uh, allude to a one character who's in a production of Romeo and Juliet, um, and the last episode has a just a wild Romeo and Juliet interpreta- interpretation um, <laughs> that involves a lot of sex and, and space, and it's great. It's so good. Um, and that's all I will say about that. I'm not going to spoil it. It's just... So good. Um, And also, if you're a fan of, like, Shakespearean Easter eggs, uh, I've been watching The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina lately, um, and, like, one of the main villains in season three is named Caliban, who's, like, a demon from hell. Oh, yeah. Emma was telling me about that, and we have a lot of questions about why that choice was made and what that's saying. Yes, I so am I. It, so I'm pretty I sure the writers. In, but... I'm pretty sure the writers did not ask themselves any of those questions. They probably just thought it was a cool name. So that's because it has literally nothing to do with right. with that character from Shakespeare. They just took his right. name. Um, yeah. There's also like a a witch this season named Sycorax, um, who also not Caliban's mother. They have nothing to do with each other in the show, but they stole her name, Sycorax. Um, Robin Goodfellow makes an appearance. Yeah. Robin Goodfellow. I mean, there's a Shakespearean in that writer's room somewhere. Yeah. But. Yeah. yeah. They're maybe not doing their homework. Yeah. No, they're. I mean, well, the Robin Goodfellow one fits. Right. If you watch the show, there's like he's he's a hobgoblin. They call him a hobgoblin. So like, you, you know, um, let me think what else. It's not Shakespearean, but there's a character named Faustus, you know, an allusion to Marlowe. Um, so, like, they mostly with their names. It's really just with their names that they're throwing in little Shakespeare Easter eggs. I mean, but, yeah, still. there's definitely a Shakespearean in that writer's room for fucking sure. So that's that. And if so, if you are fans of those shows on Netflix, um, mm, enjoy. Enjoy that. <laughs> enjoy the Shakespeare that comes along with that. <laughs> Uh, and uh, if that's it, oh, were we going to talk any how to grad school? We were not going to do that this week. Okay. I have nothing to say. Oh, okay. I can't. I have, there's no, I'm, nope. Okay. Here's um, how to grad school. Don't go to grad school. No. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. I mean, on our, um, on our recording schedule, it said something about imposter syndrome, but. Oh, yeah. Don't go to grad school and then you won't have imposter syndrome. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. I can I can tell you're really it's in not, it right now, so I'm yeah. not going to touch that yeah. one with a 10-foot pole. 
don't go to grad school. <laughs> don't write a dissertation. It's bad. <laughs> oh, it's okay. It's fine. Well, it's fine. <laughs> um, well, before Jess has a, a big old breakdown, um, thank you yep. so much, everyone, for listening. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. <sighs> Tune in next week to listen to me cry about Richard II and also my dissertation. Here's a preview. It's just going to be 45 minutes of me going, uh, Is that how you cry? When it's Richard II and my dissertation, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm just going to lie on the floor and moan pretty much for an hour. So, um, And I won't um, laugh. I, I yeah. won't laugh at you, all. I will be a supportive friend. That it's it's gonna be horrific but uh i did it to myself it's gonna be art (laughs) it's gonna be something yeah okay cool uh whamble it out if you enjoyed our podcast please tell your friends rate us leave us a review and subscribe on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts for show notes and other fun stuff, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. You can email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. Um, And every time he saw me after that, he winked at me. So I think Mm. I came out the better for it. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Girl, get you those happy winks. I know, right? It was more of a like, I'm going to just, hey, girl, you know, stay away from me. You're weird.